Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you're here for the first time with us today, we are so uh, glad that you're here with us. You know, starting next week, we're going to be in a brand new series. It's going to be a four-week series looking at the DNA and core values and vision of our church. And so if, uh, if it's your first time, I, will, I want to invite you back to, to come back for these next three or four weeks with us as we uh, really talk about what our church is all about. Um, you know, over the past 11 months, uh, we have walked through the book of John. That's typically what we do here. We just walk through books of the Bible. And today, um, we have officially come to the end of the book of John. And I find it fitting uh, that we end on Jesus' final prayer for us in John 17. Yes, the Gospel of John, it ends in John 21 with the resurrection of Jesus that we saw this past spring. Uh, but as we kind of came back to this uh, final upper room teaching, you know, I have been very challenged uh, by this. And I believe that God has personally grown me as uh, I've, I'm just kind of teaching through this. And as we look back on this book and the purpose of the book of John, as John wrote in John 20, 30, he said he wrote it so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in, this, in his name. You know, the purpose of John was written so that people would believe in Jesus and find full life in Jesus. And I can't help but believe that, y'all, we have seen just that. Like I know, like I said, I have personally grown through this book and our, our journey through uh, John. I really believe others have too. And not to mention, just throughout this book, over the past 11 months, we've baptized 16 people. Yeah, praise the Lord. And I, and I believe that we're going to baptize more several weeks from now. Y'all, when people hear the good news of the gospel that God loves us unconditionally and sent His Son, uh, Jesus, to die for us on our behalf so that we can know God personally, you know, it changes lives. It shows people the path to full life. And I believe that we've seen so much of this over the past 11 months as we've walked through the book of John. But as we kind of land the plane coming to the end of John, today we're at the end of Jesus' final prayer for His people right before His death and resurrection. And as we saw last week, how uh, John 17, our, our text for today, we, we saw that it's a great place to start when seeking to discern God's will for our life. Like seeing how Jesus prays for us, seeing his desires for us, praying that we'd be protected from the enemy, that we would know what is true, that we would become more like Jesus, growing in, in our love for God's word, and growing that we would uh, know God personally more and more. And we also saw last week that Jesus prays for his mission. But the one thing that we did not talk about much was the one thing that Jesus emphasized maybe more than all the others, which is our main idea for today. Jesus prays for the unity of his people. And so out of everything that Jesus prayed for, the last thing he said, right before, his, uh, right before he goes to die, the, he put the most, most emphasis on uh, was the unity of believers, a sports team, like I don't think it's hard for us to understand the importance of this. You know, a sports team um, that's not on the same page, it's going to be, uh, dis they're going to be disunified. They're going to struggle. For example, if a football team is trying to run a play and the quarterback is running one play and the running back and the offensive line are running a totally different play and the uh, wide receivers are running something totally different, it doesn't take the smartest person in the world to quickly realize uh, things aren't going to go real well. And this is where I'd probably insert some sort of jab for, I mean, with the football season coming up, but it's often my own college team that looks like this uh, at times. Or how about this? If a rowing team is not unified with one person going in one direction and the other going in a different direction, uh, they're not going anywhere. Like the, the, they're going to start going in circles. 
Or on a bigger scale, maybe you're familiar with Abraham Lincoln's famous speech on how a house divided against itself cannot stand, which is, he paraphrased from the Bible, you know, Abraham Lincoln knew that a divided country would crumble, which two and a half years later led to the American Civil War. Or maybe, on a more personal note for us today, when a husband and wife are not unified, the entire household will see the results of it. Like when friends and roommates and families are disunified, it causes tension. And so it should not surprise us that Jesus prays for the unity of his people. Well, New City, if you pray for anything for our church, which I hope you do, after today, I really hope and pray that you will put the unity uh, somewhere near the top of the list. Because if we're not unified as a body of believers, Jesus shows us today that our effectiveness in the mission of God, it will falter. And so today, we have two simple points, looking at number one, the tragedy of disunity, and number two, the blessing of unity. And I don't do this often, but today I'm going to first walk through the end of John 17 using Jesus' prayer as the foundation for our time. And then we're going to kind of zoom out, looking at unity from a broader scale, looking more at other passages, um, look, kind of to build out our two points, the tragedy of disunity and the blessing of unity. And as we go through each point, we'll look at some of the causes of disunity and also what drives unity, which is what Jesus prays for. And so I want to make note here. Um, that I've, I've read and listened to Francis Chan's book on unity to prepare for our time today. Like he, he wrote this book uh, last year in 2021 as a response to one of the more disunified times in the American church. And one of the saddest things for me to witness over the past few years is just to be and see brothers and sisters in Christ all over the United States divided by politics and vaccines and masks and racial and social issues and so much more. Right, there's no question over the past few years, division among, a ch- among churches all across America have been painfully divided. Like, there's just, like, it's just been so prevalent, which in many ways has made me so thankful for God's kindness to us over the past year, just to grow in unity. And as we look at our passage, I've been encouraged to see uh, that Jesus has been praying this for us. And Jesus is still praying this for us, that we would continue to grow in unity because it's inevitable. Jesus knows that disunity would come. Like disunity is always just around the corner if we're not careful. And so in turn, Jesus prays for the unity of his people. Like he, Jesus prayed fervently for the unity of his people because he knew that disunity would be uh, is always on the horizon. I mean, just think about this. When you get people from all different backgrounds and upbringings and ways of life and ways of thinking with different desires and priorities and conflicts and differences, like, different, they're all, conflict and differences, they're inevitable. Like, Jesus knew that his name and glory would be made known among all people all over the world from every background and every culture and age and every economic bracket. And when Jesus' mission is this big and this all-encompassing, Jesus knew that differences would be inevitable. But do you know what else Jesus knew? Jesus knew that people were messy. And that relationships are messy and that people will argue and complain and tweet and post and take hot takes and rants and make videos about other brothers and sisters in Christ whom Jesus died for. Jesus knew that people would be entranced and allured by politicians and news anchors and YouTubers and podcasters that would bash people either aggressively or passive-aggressively, either in public or behind closed doors, causing disunity among God's people. Why? Because Jesus knows that sin and evil are real and present in the world. And that the enemy is out to divide and disunify God's people. 
Like, I don't think it takes much for us to see the importance and need for Jesus' prayer for unity in the body of Christ. So yes, we're going to look at the tragedy of disunity, but we'll also look at the incredible blessing of unity. Because when, when people uh, in a church from all different backgrounds and upbringings and different, and different ages and economic brackets with all different interests and desires can come together united, it portrays something incredibly special to the outside war, world. Like it shows the greatness and the glory of Jesus. And in turn, it's a witness to the world. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn with me to John 17, starting in verse 20. Uh, and you can follow along with me. We're going to read our whole text, and we're going to kind of come back through it here. So I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be in, in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. They may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So again, just like we saw last week, uh, we see in verse 20 that Jesus is not only praying for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in Jesus, which includes us today if we profess faith in Christ. And so if we believe in Jesus, we can be confident uh, that Jesus is praying to God for us. And what is he praying for? He's praying for our oneness. He's praying that we would be unified. I mean, look again at the first half of verse 21. Jesus prays, verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also may be in us. Oh, this is incredible. Jesus prays that his people, that all those who proclaim Jesus as Lord, would be one. And then he compares our oneness, our unity as a body of believers, to the oneness of the Trinity. I mean, how cool is that? He says to God, as he prays for our unity, that we would be one, just as you, God, Father, are in me and I in you. That's what Jesus said. Jesus knows that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all one. Like they're perfectly united. And so Jesus compares our unity as a church, and he prays for our unity as a church, that we would be as unified as the Trinity. Oh, that's our standard. <laughs> that's a really high bar, and it's a really big deal. And so Jesus compares our unity as a people to the unity of the Trinity for the purpose, as he says in verse 21, that we also may be in unity with the Trinity. So get this. Our unity as a body of Christ is evidence that we are unified with God. Like the unity of the church is evidence to the church's union to Jesus. So if we're not unified as a body, there is evidence that somewhere along the way we are out of step and out of unity with God. Like, that's a big deal. Our unity is really important. And so we need to ask, what unifies our church? And well, it's Jesus. If we're joined to Christ through believing in the gospel, through believing in the truths of Jesus, 
that that Jesus, the Son of God, came down to this earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross, taking the penalty of our sin. And in turn, through believing in Jesus, we gain his reward and made children of God. If we believe all the truth claims of Jesus as made clear in the scriptures, then we have our basis for unity. Like what joins us together as a church and is our foundation for unity is our faith in Jesus Christ as revealed in the word of God. So if we're in union with God through believing in Jesus, then Jesus tells us we should be unified. Like that's it. That's our standard. And why? Well, look at what he says after that. Jesus says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, this is so important. Because the unity of God's people is a testimony to the world about the reality of Jesus. Like Jesus is essentially saying that God's people being unified helps the world believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Y'all, the unity of the church is essential to the mission of God. Like if we as a church are praying for revival in our city like we are, if we're praying for people, uh, to see people from all over the world come to Christ like we are, then Jesus has made it really clear that we can't neglect the unity of our church. If God's people are not unified, the mission of God may be hindered. But when God's people are unified, God's message and mission is made visible to the world. And so get this. If we are at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, either publicly or privately, or maybe just within our own hearts, God's mission could be hindered in some way. God's purposes on the earth may be thwarted. Like, I really mean this. If for some reason you are at odds with me or angry with me or upset with me, we need to reconcile and become unified because God's mission is at stake. Like, God so desires reconciliation and unity among all parts of the Bible because it shows the world the beauty of the gospel. Now, we saw this last week, that Jesus prays for our protection. And one of the many ways he prays for our protection from the enemy is by praying for our unity. Because again, a unified people, it's an incredible effective, incredibly effective tool in the hands of God for his purposes. And get this, Jesus just didn't say it once. He said it several different times. Look at verse 22 and 23 again. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Again, Jesus is emphasizing that the glory that God gave to Jesus, Jesus has given to us for the purpose of our unity. So Jesus has called believers in Christ. Like he's called us royalty and co-heirs with Christ. Jesus has called us children of God and image bearers. And God, he made our hearts his home through the empowering of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of our unity so that the world would know that the love of God is real. Again, one of the many tools in the hands of God for the advancement of the mission of God and the message of God is the unity of God's people. Like This is uh, what Jesus is praying to God for us, that we would be unified. Like, hear this, husbands and wives. Like, if, if you profess faith in Jesus, Jesus is praying for your unity. Why? Because Jesus knows the enemy will do whatever he can to get between and destroy your unity as a couple. Why? Because he knows your unity is a testimony to the world of the love of God. Friends who profess faith in Christ, 
Like roommates, classmates, ministry partners, those who serve alongside one another. Like Jesus is praying for our unity. And why? Because Jesus knows the enemy will speak lies and create discord and disharmony between you and others that profess faith in Christ as a means to slow, slow down God's purposes through us. So get this, church, again, if you or me are at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, whether through an argument or a difference of opinions or maybe just by annoyance or possibly even bitterness, this is evidence that the enemy is hard at work whispering lies and creating discord to thwart God's mission. Because disunity and disharmony among God's people, it's not from God. No, it comes straight from the pits of hell. And you know what? When it happens, it absolutely grieves the Lord. Like it pains the heart of God. And how do we know this? Because God, Jesus, eagerly and desperately prays for the unity of God's people. Like he longs for it and desires it for us. Like, if you want to know the will of God for your life is to be unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to seek reconciliation and repentance, to be unified with God's people. And where is our unity found? Again, it's found in Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Our unity is not in where we live or in our plans. It's not in our political opinions or which news channel we watch or what sports team we cheer for. And it's not even in denominational institutions. No, our unity is based in Jesus Christ and his word. Now, yes, I want to be very careful here because I'm totally aware that what we believe, it is very important, extremely important. Like we deeply value the word of God here. And we want to do everything we possibly can to make sure we get the truth of Jesus correct and then we get the word of God right. Like doctrine and theology, it matters deeply. I mean, in this exact same prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed that we would know the truth. And so we have stances that we take here at our church on specific theological issues, and we have a statement of faith as a church, and it's good and right that we do this. And something that's just helpful for us as we kind of think through this in this conversation is just for us to have categories of primary and secondary and tertiary doctrinal issues, theological issues. Like primary doctrines that are salvation issues that we must agree on that determine the difference between true Christianity and false Christianity. Like if someone doesn't affirm these primary issues of the faith, they're not Christians. And if a primary issues are like if primary issues are the dividing line between Christian and non-Christian, then secondary issues are things that determine differences in churches that are significant enough to have different churches. Like these are things like how we baptize people and how we think about church polity and how we take and how we think of communion. And I want to say here that in this category, yes, we can have differences, but we can and we can and should still be unified for the mission of God. And there's so many nuances here that we don't have time to go into. But it's important. But then thirdly, these Third-level tertiary issues. These are these issues where brothers and sisters in Christ can have differences in the same church and, still, and, and have disagreements and still be in the same, same church. Like how we think about the end times, for example. Or maybe uh, like how we like minor nuances of like, like non-primary texts. That just like how we, how we interpret very minor things. As well as a whole list of other things that we just we don't have time to go into. But when we talk about unity today, we need to be clear that we're not talking about primary issues of the faith. We're not talking about salvation issues and heretical false teachings. 
Now, we're talking in some cases about these secondary and tertiary issues, but honestly, in most cases, disunity in the church often doesn't come from theological issues, but oftentimes issues of like methodology or how, uh, how they come from people's opinions or just people maybe just being mean or how uh, just like unmet expectations and disappointments. I mean, just the fact that people can have the same statement of faith and still be disunified is a testimony to this. But again, when Jesus calls for unity in the church, he was calling for unity for all those who profess faith in Jesus. Like this is who Jesus is praying for, for all those who hold to the same primary issues of the faith. And in a perfect world, we wouldn't have these differences and nuances, but unfortunately we do. And again, I think it's good and right to think well and defend the truths of Jesus and to guard the word of God and to watch out for false teachings as the scriptures call us to do. But I say all of this while knowing that the unity in the body of Christ is of utmost importance. Like it's not an either or, it's a both and. So much so that every single New Testament book makes a plea, almost every book makes a plea for either a unified people or in some sort of way to not engage in foolish controversies that would then cause discord and disunity. And so this is what we're going to do with the rest of our time. Like I said, we're going to use the rest of our Bible to dig more into these two ideas of unity around God's people, seeing our two points, the tragedy of disunity and the blessing of unity. Uh, But we've already touched on uh, both of those in some way, but I want to continue to expound them kind of using the rest of the Bible. But let's look at number one, the tragedy of disunity. You know, I just said the entire New Testament is filled with encouragement towards unity and also speaks against things that would cause disunity. So just like I said at the beginning, if a football team tries to run a play and the entire team is running in a a different play, the team's not going to do very well. Like the quarterback, he's going to get sacked, uh, throw an interception, the running back will get clobbered. Like it would be a total joke. Or on a not so funny occasion, the result of disunity are tragic, like strife in marriages or bitterness in relationships, people getting left out, made fun of, or mocked. Y'all, disunity, it can be tragic. Let's look at Galatians 5, just for a few minutes. We'll have it up on the screen. Here, Paul, the author, is talking about walking by the Spirit and walking by the flesh, showing how the desires of the flesh and the Spirit are opposed to each other. And in verses 19 to 21 of Galatians 5, Paul lists out works of the flesh. Like These are the things that God opposes. Verse 19, look what it says. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, And we hear that, we're like, okay, yeah, I I get that. But then look at all these other things that he then lists, what would fall under the category of causing disunity and division. Paul keeps going and says, these are also works of the flesh. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, division, envy. And when we look at how he finishes the list, He equates strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, and envy with Galatians 5.21 saying next, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So get this, rivalries and division, jealousy and strife and enmity or animosity or hatred in the body of Christ. Paul speaks of the disunity and the division that is caused by those things in the same vein, same sentence as drunkenness, orgies, sexual immorality, idolatry, and sorcery. And so let's play this out a step further. Like idolatry, sorcery, and sexual immorality are used in the same tragic sentence as things that cause division and disunity in the body of Christ. So ignoring a brother or sister who proclaims Jesus 
and not talking to them and disassociating with them or speaking poorly about them, maybe behind closed doors, because they may think differently than us on a non-primary biblical issue is placed in the same sentence as witchcraft and adultery. It's like, well, that seems a little intense. And to that we have to say, well, the Bible says it, not me. And you know, when I saw those together, you know, I had to stop what I was doing this week. And by the conviction of the Spirit, I had to immediately go and seek reconciliation with my wife for any strife or dissension or anger that I've caused. Like Paul put enmity and strife and fits of anger and division in the same sentence as sorcery and sexual immorality. Like, I walked into the kitchen, sat down next to Kelly, put my head on her shoulder just in total despair. I was like, babe, I'm like a sorcerer. Like, I've basically done witchcraft. Will you forgive me? Like, how convicting. But this is how the Bible speaks of disunity and discord within the body of Christ. It's seen as tragic. You know what? In that exact same chapter, in Galatians chapter 5, right after what we just read, Paul lists off the fruits of the Spirit that are seen in contrast to the works of the flesh, which we talk about often. We talk about these often. So in contrast, when we're walking by the Spirit, we'll be unified by love and unified by the joy and peace that we have in Christ. We'll be filled with patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness towards one another. When we walk by the Spirit, we'll be self-controlled in the way we speak and how we speak, which will in turn drive us towards unity. But get this, with what we just read, it's very clear that we can have right theology and defend the correct doctrine when speaking to others, which is good and right. But yet if we do it while being combative, impatient, and unkind, and not gentle, we're walking by the flesh and not by the Spirit. Like if we compromise love and kindness and gentleness for the sake of right doctrine and theology, New City, God is not pleased with our defense because we have spoken in a way that nailed Jesus to the cross. I mean, how convicting. Y'all, over the past few months, again, I have seen far too many social media posts and Twitter wars and video hot takes uh, where people were, were saying things that possibly were true, and maybe many were possibly not true, but regardless of the truthfulness of it, gentleness and grace were absent. And you know what it resulted in? Disunity and discord all across churches in the United States. And the sad part about it all is that it was often directed towards people whom Jesus gave up his life for. You know, it's one thing to teach about grace and to be able to explain the doctrines of grace, but it's a totally different thing to live it out and show it to others. Again, please hear me loud and clear. I'm not saying unity dismisses sin and is lazy about doctrine, but a person who has the right doctrine without showing love and grace is revealing our immaturity as followers of Christ. And Jesus in John 17 is earnestly praying for the unity, the church's unity for the sake of the world, knowing the love of God. And if this is Jesus' motive, then we better believe that the church's disunity is showing the world bad theology and a picture of immaturity. Church, we must just be just as willing to fight for our unity and peace among each other and fight for reconciliation among one another just as much as we defend right doctrine. So I want to take a bit of a heat check here for a second because y'all, well, this is not fun. Like this is really hard. And there's several things all over Scripture that we'll see that cause disunity in the Bible, but the one thing that seems the most prevalent is pride. Pride in the hearts of God's people will drive a wedge between, between us 
and it grieves the heart of God. We see Paul show us this right after he goes to the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He says in verses 25 and 26, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul says being conceited, being prideful, provokes each other and causes envy. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 shows that humility and gentleness and bearing with one another in patience helps to maintain unity of the Spirit. And if this is true, which it is, then it's clear pride will lead to disunity. On the heels of pride is where we fight for right doctrine while forsaking gentleness and love. Where we find disunity, we'll also likely find evidences of pride. Our pride will lead us to win an argument but crush a person's spirit in the process. Our pride will lead us to defend what is true but burn relational bridges at the same time. New City, our pride has the ability to crush the unity of a church, the very thing which Jesus died for. Again, disunity among God's people, y'all, the Bible is clear. It's tragic. And I don't know about for you, but for me, this is so convicting. Because I know that I've personally provoked others to anger and had to seek repentance multiple times. I know how prideful and stubborn I can be and how often I have to seek forgiveness and how often I catch myself just being old stubborn Eric again. And it would be really easy for me and for us to just stay and dwell in the conviction of this. But church, we must remember that the gospel teaches us a different way. The gospel teaches us that although, yes, we're prideful and can be stubborn and argumentative, guess what? The gospel tells us that God knew it, and yet he still sent Jesus to die for us anyways. God knew that we would have in our natural flesh to naturally just drift towards sin and rebellion and pride, but yet he still sent Jesus to rescue us and to fill us with his spirit and to change us and to unify us. And as Francis Chan so pointedly said in his book, when two people are looking to Jesus and totally filled with the spirit and denying our flesh, we can't be divided. Y'all, the Spirit inside us convicts us and changes us and leads us to repentance. And guess what? Every day, God comes to us with grace upon grace upon grace, and He models to us and for us the path to unity. Like God says today, you are a new creation. He says today, in Christ, we are completely new and free. Today, in Christ, God looks at us and says, you are my beloved children. Because, at, because Jesus at the cross, God has empowered us and equipped us as a body of Christ to be able to be unified as God and Jesus and the Spirit are unified. Like, what a gift! Because of the gospel, we are empowered to put away the old life and to walk by the Spirit in the new life. And when we walk in love and gentleness and kindness while also defending the truth and seeking to know what's right and true in His words... When all these things we're kind of like sure on or maybe 60 to 70% sure on or 50% sure on, we can come to these things with humility and gentleness and patience and just be okay with possibly being maybe wrong. Or even if we're totally convinced in our minds, we can still come with humility and gentleness and realize that if a brother or sister in Christ, like Jesus gave up his life for them. And so I'm going to love them how Jesus loves them. And when you know what happens when 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 this happens? We get to enjoy, number two, the blessing of unity. Like the very thing that Jesus prayed for for his people. And I want to stop here and just acknowledge for a second that this is much easier to preach on and it is much harder to live. Because life is messy and relationships are messy. 
But reconciliation and forgiveness, it should always be the goal. And we must acknowledge that it's not always so clean cut and easy because it takes repentance and change and a ton of grace by all sides. And we also still live in a fallen world where we need the body of Christ to come around us and help us and discern and use wisdom and what pursuing unity looks like in the body of Christ in a helpful and wise way. But I say this while knowing that there is an incredible blessing that comes with the unity of God's people. And that blessing that Jesus shows us in John 17 is a greater worship of God around the world. Like when people around us see reconciliation in marriages and in relationships and in the church is a testimony to the world of the goodness of Jesus. When the world and those around us see people from all different worldviews united under Jesus, it's a testimony to the kindness of God. When God changes a life and restores brokenness, it shows the world the sweetness of God's grace. And in, more, in turn, more people are led to worship God. New City, Jesus showed us in John 17 that the blessing that comes with unity is the advancement of the mission of God is for the salvation of the lost. Our unity is one of the ways God seeks to show the lost a picture of the gospel. And so if we want to see a friend come to Christ, fight for unity with your brother and sister in Christ. Display the gospel and then proclaim the gospel, showing that it's real and true. Jesus prayed for our unity so the world would know the love of God. Again, if pride hinders unity, which at its core, like it's worship in all of oneself and our opinions, then we can see that what drives unity is humility and worship in all of God. And when a whole group of people, when a church is consumed with worshiping the Lord and leading with humility, the result will be the world seeing something different. Like the result of a humble people being consumed with worshiping Jesus, it is a force to be reckoned with and to advance the mission of God. And the enemy despises it. Like if disunity is caused by being consumed with false worship, the unity in the body comes from all parties being concerned, consumed with the worship of God. Your enemy wants us to be consumed with our thoughts and opinions and not God and His glory. But yet the unity of the body of Christ leads to relationships reconciled, marriages restored, and the hurting healed, which we want to see done on repeat over and over and over again. Unity in the body of Christ leads people towards encouragement and zeal and passion towards the gifts God has given each of us for his purposes. And when we are in awe of Jesus and we take up our cross and realize we're not God and fall down and worship God, unity in the body of Christ it just happens. New City, God's mission and purposes on this earth, it is way too big for us to settle for disunity among one another. Again, unity in the body, it's essential. We must fight for it. You know what happens when the body of Christ is unified? God blesses it. You know, this past week I saw a video of several tribes in Papua with about five of these tribes. They were, it was about 50 or 60 years ago. They were all fighting against each other like they were headhunters and cannibals. And they were killing each other. Like these, these tribes, they were in constant war with each other. Then a missionary family comes in Loved them, served them, cared for them, shared the gospel with them. And they didn't respond at first, but over time, they began to respond. And slowly, over time, more and more people began to come to Christ and be changed. And then 30 years later, when they went back, 
These villages that were once fighting against each other, killing each other, in war with one another, because of the gospel, they became unified. And they worshiped together. And they did church together. And they lived on mission for Jesus together as a unified group of people. I mean, it was a beautiful picture of the reconciling power of the gospel. Y'all, this is just what the gospel does. The true gospel, it's a unifying gospel. It breaks down barriers and hostility and strongholds, and it unifies God's people. The unifying gospel blesses God's people, and these tribes, uh, these tribal people, they were experiencing the blessing of unity. So not only was the mission of God going forward, but they were at peace physically, spiritually, relationally. I mean, literally, the people in the villages were living longer and healthier because they were unified. In New City, this is not just true for cannibalistic tribes against one another. But this is true for marriages. This is true for families and relationships, for our church and for our friendships. When we live in unity as a unified front, it blesses God's people. A unified house that doesn't grumble and argue and bicker is going to be a blessing to all those in it. The same is true for the church at large. Y'all, I'm so thankful for how our church is unified, and I do believe that God is blessing us for it. But just because we're unified on many levels doesn't mean we can't grow in it, and it doesn't mean disunity could easily be right around the corner. And being fierce to fight for unity looks like being quick to seek repentance and quick to forgive. It looks like putting our pride at the door and walking in humility with one another and keeping our attention on Jesus. And I want to end our time just by looking at the last three verses of John 17 and just kind of paint a picture for us that will lead us towards our time in communion today. Just seeing an incredible picture of unity. Look starting in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus said that he desires for his people to be with him in glory, that we would experience the full love of God with him forever. And Jesus says at the end of verse 26, that the same love that he gave to us, that unconditional love where he showed us grace and mercy, mercy and rescued us out of our unbelief and calling us his own. That same love that Jesus gave to us, Jesus said that same love, it's inside of us. And we think about that for us. How the relentless love of God has placed in us Like when others wrong us and sow discord and dissension, when we remember the love of God in us, we're then empowered to show the same love to others that Jesus has shown to us. Like Jesus forgiving us each and every day empowers us by his grace to forgive others day in and day out. Like it empowers us to forgiveness and reconciliation in the body of Christ, in our friendships and in our marriages each and every day. Y'all, it never stops. You know what this does? It creates unity and oneness and it establishes reconciliation. And it shows the world that the love of Jesus is real and it changes lives. But I want to point something out that Jesus said in verse 24. Jesus said that he desires for us to be with him in glory. 
Like he desires for his people to worship him forever. And when we read that and hear that, I can't help but think of the picture of the unity of God's people when all is said and done. When we are with Jesus forever, seeing his full glory, just worshiping Jesus forever. And as I think about that, as we, as we think about communion that we're about to take, I, I can't help but think how in the end we'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When all of God's people from all over the world, from every background and denomination, will be at the wedding celebrating and worshiping God with people from all tribes and languages and peoples and nations, totally unified, worshiping Jesus. Like at the wedding supper of the Lamb, total unity within the global body of Christ, it will finally happen. I mean, how encouraging. Like God will totally unify His people. It will happen. Like we are moving as the body of Christ towards unity. Like denominational divisions will be gone. Strife and discord and disagreements, they will no longer exist. Division will be a thing of the past and all of God's people will bow down in total humility, worshiping God, totally and completely unified. Church, that is where we're going. And I can't help but think, as Francis Chan pointed out in his book, we must ask, who will be at that wedding worshiping with us? that maybe while we're here on earth, maybe we wouldn't want on the guest list at a wedding while we're here. Like who will be at that wedding that while we're here on this earth, we maybe don't want to talk with or associate with. And maybe you're here today and maybe you're not a Christian. I want to plead with you to trust in Christ because I want you also to be at the wedding with us, worshiping God forever. And trusting Jesus is the only way Trusting in Christ is the way to the marriage supper of the Lamb to worship God forever. New City, Jesus is praying for the unity of our church. He's pleading to God for us, for our unity. And so I just want to call us to join him in praying for us also. Y'all, let's pray. God, you're good to us. Even though we're broken people, you show us grace upon grace. You lavish us with your mercy and you empower us to do things that are really, really hard. But God, we can trust that Jesus, the love of Jesus is inside of us and that you are empowering us to show grace to others. God, I pray for the unity of New City Church that we would continue to grow in unity so that your name may be known among our city and among the world. God, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.